0: a significant Sunday and another reason uh, is we get the amazing opportunity to hear from someone else today on our staff and his name is Cade Paulson uh, and he serves as the youth pastor here at Heart Church uh, and I could not be more excited for the message that he's going to share today uh, with our community. I've known Cade for a really long time and I believe that one of the best compliments that you could give um, a pastor or a preacher uh, is that Cade is the same person uh, off the platform as he is on the platform. Uh, that the posture of his heart is above reproach. Uh, that he loves Jesus absolutely, like incredibly well. And he's an amazing example. Uh, in the scriptures it says in Acts 4 that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they recognized they were common and ordinary men. But they could tell that they'd been with Jesus. Uh, and I believe this morning that as Kate comes and he gives a message for us to lean into the truth and the way of Jesus uh, that we would receive it today because that we could tell he's been with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Uh, and I just want to encourage Cade before he comes up here uh, with the scripture. But it says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to teaching... Do not neglect the gift that you have. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And, Kate, I'm so proud of you and could not be more excited to sit under your teaching today. It's going to be an amazing time. And I just would encourage all of us as a community together, all men receive these words because they're good. So could we give it up for Kate as he comes and makes his way up here?
1: How's it going, everyone? Uh, Like Kramer said, my name is Cade, and I get the incredible gift to uh, serve on the YC team with Amaya and the rest of the crew. Uh, It's a huge honor. Uh, And thanks, Kramer, for letting me speak this morning. Like you said, super common, super ordinary, uh, but I do really love Jesus. Um, And I grew up in Gig Harbor. Uh, This is where I went to high school. Uh, I was in a YC group, and it absolutely changed my life. Uh, And that's why I'm super passionate about YC. Uh, because I believe it could actually change a young person's life. Not because there's anything special about me or Kramer or Alyssa or Amaya, uh, but because the God of the universe wants to actually speak to young people and remind them of their God identity. Uh, So I'm super passionate about it. Uh, This morning, I was talking to uh, Amaya on the phone, and I was like, I don't know what to eat. I was like, I feel like if I eat too much, I'm going to puke. I feel like if I eat too little, I'm going to pass out up here, and it's going to be like all over Instagram. I'm like, what do I do? Like, What are my options? So I just went with peanut butter toast, a little bit of raw honey. I'm feeling all right, but I'm wishing I went with like more of like a handful of blueberries or something. <laughs> feel a little bit, you know. But anyways, you'll have to have grace uh, for me on that. Um, but this morning, uh, if you're a big notes person, the title of my message is Why Jesus. Uh, to open our time together, I want to read the main scripture that we're going to be orienting ourselves around this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. A really obscure passage of scripture. But before we do that, will you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, I just ask that my words would fall flat. That your words would rise to the surface. uh, That it would not be about me uh, or anybody else or the worship we do later. But it would be all about you. Holy are you, God, creator of heaven and earth. We give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the spotlight this morning. Amen. You guys have probably heard this scripture before. It's pretty popular. It goes like this. It says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is arguably the most well known passage of scripture in the entire Bible. And it would be really easy to have a heard it before mindset, but I believe Jesus wants to teach us something absolutely fresh this morning. It's interesting. This passage seems so straightforward, so direct, so summative of the entire narrative of Scripture, but it raises a very challenging question when I read it. And it's the title of this message, Why Jesus? Because when we really think about it, I don't see why we needed Jesus at all. Some of you are looking at the front row at Kramer like, what is this guy saying? Did he go to Bible college? Like, can we trust a word this guy says? Trying to tell us that we don't need Jesus? Uh, To be clear, I'm not saying that we don't need Jesus. Because we desperately do every day of our lives. But what I am saying is that when we really think about it, why was Jesus the solution opposed to something else? Opposed to something easier? Opposed to something less costly? We know that God is all-powerful. There's no higher power than God. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and also for him. All right, so we've established that God created all things. It's also important to point out the fact that God authored the rules of morality as well as the consequences for immorality. The scriptures make this really clear in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 when it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lastly, God is not held accountable by anyone or anything. Think about this for a moment. No one is checking in on God, making sure that he's following all the standard procedures and doing the job of being God correctly. God does not answer to anyone or anything. So God is well within his rights as the most powerful being in existence to do anything and everything that he wills. There was no one checking up on God. Genesis chapter three, verses six through seven says this When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed together fig leaves, and they made coverings for themselves. This is the exact moment in the narrative of Scripture that sin enters into the world. And now there's a problem. This problem needs to be reconciled. A sin problem. And humanity is not even close to capable enough to fixing the sin problem on their own. So the task of reconciling the sin problem falls onto God. And this is where in cultural Christianity, me and you fill in the blank with Jesus, right? It's Jesus. He comes and he saves us from our sins. But why? That doesn't make any sense Some people believe that it was ransom, that the devil had possession over us. So God paid the devil in order for us to experience freedom. But this isn't possible because that theory would suggest that God owed the devil. And this isn't possible since God wrote the rules and created all things and predates everything in existence. And scripture says he's the firstborn of all creation. If God wrote the rules and created all things then why didn't he just rewrite the rules in order to reconcile the sin problem? Why didn't God just create an alternate reality where the fall never happened and he didn't have to send his son Jesus in the most costly fashion ever? It makes no sense. John 3.16. Think about it. No one is telling God that he has to fix the sin problem a certain way. There's not one right way. This isn't Ikea furniture. Why didn't he just rewrite the rules? Why didn't he just create an alternate reality? Sending Jesus to live and to die and to be humiliated on earth seems a whole lot harder, a lo- whole lot more complicated. There is no lines that God can't cross. There is no boundaries for him. He is God, but still he chooses to send his son to die. The more you think about it, the wilder John 3:16 through 17 really is. For God so loved the world that he sent the world his son. What? God literally do anything else. No one is going to question your decision making as God or let alone even know what you did. Don't you know how hard it's going to be to send your son? Don't you know how they're going to treat him and spit on him and ridicule him and mock him, the people that he created? Don't you know how they're going to kill him? But still, God sends Jesus. Why? It makes no sense. In the first part of John 3.16, I think it illuminates on this idea. For God so loved the world. This morning I want to give context to how much God really loves you. Because I think it could change everything about your life. It could change everything about the way you treat people. You want to know how much the Heavenly Father really loves you? He loves you so much that he would subject himself to the rules that he created for me and for you because he is good. And he wouldn't go outside of the rules that he created for me and for you because he is good. Mark chapter 10 verse 18 says, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. So because God is good, and because of his great love for humanity, God devises the plan to send his exact representation in the person of Jesus to come and play by the rules that he created to demonstrate his goodness and supremacy. This is why God sends his son. Not because he had no other options, because everything was on the table for him. But he wouldn't have gone outside the rules that we are subjected to because he loves you that dearly. He loves you that much. His character is that consistent. His affections are that consistent for you. So now we know why he came, what this demonstrated. But what did he do when he was here? What can we learn from the gospel account of Jesus? What does John three seventeen say? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. To understand what John is saying here, we have to look at the sacrifice of Jesus' death through the lens of the Old Testament as well as the New. The Old Testament is all pointing to the culmination of this entire book, the personhood of Jesus Christ. So what does it say? In Leviticus chapter 16, verses 20 through 22, this is what scripture says. It says, when Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of Meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task, and the goat will carry on itself all of the sins of all the people to a remote place, and then the man shall release it into the wilderness to die. This one animal would carry on itself the sins of an entire people group the iniquities of an entire people group but the problem with the animal is it's it's just an animal it couldn't bring about any lasting change this is why the ritual had to be repeated year after year in the old testament the people of god had to offer sacrifices in order to be made right with god they're just attempting to deal with the sin problem with the instructions given to them from the lord attempting to deal with it in the best way they know how A lot of the time when we think of strict observers of scripture, we think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious elites. Their form of dealing with the sin problem was to observe the law in its entirety and to not deviate from it. The Pharisees emerged out of the exile of the Israelites to Babylon and they were influenced by prominent figures like Ezra and Nehemiah. And because the Pharisees prioritized the law over people, they naturally condemned a lot of people. Here are a couple examples of those. In John chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, this is what scripture says. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such woman. What do you have to say about this? Later on in John chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees are talking to a man who had his eyes opened by the risen Savior, opened by Jesus. And they say to him, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So when John is writing his gospel account, he is writing to an audience who only know how to temporarily deal with the sin problems in their life and who have definitely experienced condemnation from the religious authorities at the time. So what does he write? What does he say? He says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whomever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world, through him. He is not here to condemn you, and he is not here to just keep sin at bay for a year. It is so much better than that. In the same way that the sins of the Israelites were cast onto one animal, our sins and the sins of every person, past, present, and future, were cast upon the person of Jesus as he hung on the cross. For every sin there's a punishment, and for that punishment, or for, for every sin there's a punishment, and that punishment is the wrath of God. Now imagine this for a second. All the wrath stored up for my life, just one person, stored up for the end day to be executed upon me. And then combined all the wrath of all people, past, present, and future. And imagine that being redirected away from me and you onto the perfect Son of God, the Lamb of God, as he hung on the cross. And it was so intense that it killed him, and the Father had to separate himself from Jesus. Redirected onto the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world by becoming sin and by enduring all the wrath stored up for me and you, past, present, and future. In a moment, Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. My good friend Cramer Payne pointed out the other day in John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. God didn't think to fix the, the sin problem by sending a pastor or a talented worship group, or a set of rules, or seven sacraments for us to engage in. No, he sent his son. So it makes absolutely no sense to be found forming our lives around a pastor, or a set of rules, or a talented worship group, or a political ideation, or anything that would seek to divide us or draw lines between us. We have to be found forming our lives around the person of Jesus if you desire to wear the title of Jesus follower. How do we do this? How do we acknowledge the radical nature of what has been done for us and then seek to form our lives around the person of Jesus? For the rest of our time together, I want to talk about this question. I think one of the best ways to form your life around the person of Jesus is to treat him like the person that he is. This may seem oversimplified, but maybe maybe we need something simple. Imagine for a second with me if we actually believed that there was a God who was all-powerful who created us, who loves us, who answers prayers, who calls us to discipleship, even in the midst of our biggest flaws and hidden secrets? Why would we only pray to that God before meals? Why would we gather with people around that God just to check a box or to see friends? Why would we reduce that God down to a list of do's or don'ts? I don't think that would be the most logical response, and I think that you all would agree with me. What makes more sense is complete devotion, obsession, and life transformation centered around that God, the disciple Simon Peter, beautifully demonstrates what form in your life around the person of Jesus could look like. It's not always in a straight line. Sometimes it's going to be up and down, but the person that the church was founded on besides Jesus, beautifully demonstrates what a life centered around the Lord of everything could look like. And the story starts off in Matthew chapter four verses 18 through 22. The Bible records as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets, and they followed him. Peter leaves his old life behind to follow Jesus. He sacrifices so much of what is valued to him in order to gain the only thing that really matters. Peter recognizes that Jesus shouldn't have called him. He's not qualified like some of his peers. He didn't get ahead of the game like some other people But when Jesus calls him, he's shocked. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. It's almost too good to be true. Wait, Jesus, you mean to tell me that you have the keys of eternal life in your hand and you see all the hidden sin in my life and you still choose me? Of course I accept. This is the opportunity of a lifetime, but so often me and you don't treat the offer as such. Me and you like to disregard the call to discipleship and instead we become satisfied with so much less. And I'm absolutely guilty of this. C.S. Lewis, in his book called The Weight of Glory, writes this. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go about making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Some of you are thinking to yourself, is this guy the same person that wrote Narnia? There's beavers and Turkish delight and happy endings and great lines. Is this the same guy? I don't want this to be discouraging because I am so guilty of this. I become satisfied with so much less every day of my life when I should be going for so much more. The thing that is so easily and accessibly offered to me. But I become satisfied with so much less. And so does Simon Peter at one point in his life. Later in the gospel story, Peter is found declaring who he believes Jesus to be in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, and in doing so, reveals a key element of what it means to be a Jesus follower. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say one of the other prophets, or Elijah, or Jeremiah. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for that was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter, in this passage, emphatically declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and that means that Peter acknowledges Jesus' power to save his life. This means that Peter acknowledges Jesus' power to give him eternal significance in the kingdom of heaven. But how often do you and I just treat Jesus as a good teacher or a standard to live up to? When in reality, the only way to be found forming our lives around the person of Jesus is to acknowledge him as Messiah. Because the truth is, if we acknowledge him as anything less than Messiah, it's not worth it. You shouldn't be following someone who can't save your life who's not Savior and Messiah. So we have to be found acknowledging him as Messiah. But Peter's story is far from over, just like a lot of times mine and yours is. You've probably heard the story of Peter disowning Jesus three times. It's a commonly told story in churches in the West and all across the globe. The last time Peter sees Jesus alive before his crucifixion, he is exclaiming that he doesn't even know who Jesus is, and he's calling down curses, and he could not be more serious about the fact that he doesn't know this man who's about to take the hill. This is the last memory Of his Lord and his dear friend. To make matters worse, after Jesus is crucified, the Bible records that Peter actually goes back to his old life. John 21 reveals the fact that he goes back to being a fisherman, the only thing that he knows. But wait, Peter, do you remember when Jesus said you're supposed to leave your old life in spite of all your flaws and your mistakes and you not getting ahead in the game and you being behind and all these things? Jesus called you to a new life and still you you go back to fishing, to that thing that was so empty to the thing that wasn't as good as fishing for people and following the living God around. But still, Peter goes back to his old way of living. You see, a big part of Peter's story is failure and backsliding, just like mine and yours. You know how to form your life around the person of Jesus? Joyfully accept the grace you've received and let it propel you into deeper devotion with the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, the same Peter who failed and fell on his face and disowned Jesus, that was the last memory he had of him, stands in front of a large crowd and boldly preaches the gospel message for the first time after Jesus ascends into heaven. He is the first person to preach the completed gospel message that includes the risen Savior, and he boldly proclaims it. And it says so many people were added to their number that day. So when, when Jesus is raised to life and extends grace to Peter, this is his second chance. This is his hope. Jesus didn't die with the thought of Peter disowning him. No, he was raised to life and in doing so, defeated death, hell, and the grave. So Peter has no choice but to live a life on fire for Jesus. It's the only thing that makes sense living in response to grace. I want to tell you this morning that that same grace is extended to you. But it makes no sense to use that grace in order to keep on sinning What makes more sense is using it to propel you into deeper devotion and acknowledging the radical nature of costly grace. Accept the grace that is given to you in abundance. Let it propel you into a new life, completely devoted to the person of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. There's a song that says, and all of a sudden, I'm unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. Some people make fun of me for this song, but I love this song so much. I love that one line, more than maybe any line in any song and I think it perfectly puts into words what's been done for me and for you think about it all your hidden stuff all your shame all your sin all the things that you're trying so hard to keep concealed every day from your partner or your friends or the people in your life all of that eclipsed by glory eclipsed by the son of God so that it doesn't shine through because it's eclipsed by the son of God as he hangs on the cross how good is that news it's crazy John 3.16, so rejoice in the fact that your affliction has been eclipsed by glory and delight in the fact that Jesus was not the only option for the Father because everything was on the table for him in regards to fixing and reconciling the sin problem. But it's the only thing that aligns with his character. It's It's the only thing that would demonstrate his great love for you. And take heart in the fact that Jesus was humiliated so that you and I could be glorified. But how do we do this? How do we form our lives around the person of Jesus in the day-to-day? For starters, practice living a life of selflessness. Following Jesus means denying yourself, losing your life to gain it. Practice being a background character in a group conversation so that somebody else might feel like the star. Randomly text someone that you've been so reluctant to reach out to and tell them how incredible they are. Admit that someone else is right in an argument, thus showing them how much you value them over a conversation. Sit and people watch, but instead of judging and evaluating flaws and seeing how people stack up, celebrate people's God-given qualities. Find your favorite spot to sit and talk to God like you would a friend and immerse yourself in Scripture and song. Be foolish in the way that you care about people so they might get a glimpse for a second of the Heavenly Father's love for them. In Matthew 5, chapter, or Matthew 5 verses 28-32, Scripture says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them also the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand them also your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks from you and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. To the world, this concept is foolishness. If we're getting exploited, we want to put a stop to it immediately. We want to maintain our pride. We want to keep our head up. We want to maintain our pride and be looked at in a good light, right? But what if me and you really took Matthew 5 seriously? What if we welcomed unfair treatment if if it meant for a moment that somebody would get a glimpse of the Heavenly Father's heart for them? So my question to you this morning is, will we be found forming our lives around the person of Jesus, even if it looks like utter foolishness to the world? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this time. Uh, We thank you that uh, your word alone as it stands is powerful enough Uh, That I don't have to say anything special for people to be convinced. Because your word is power. Your word is life. Your word is a double-edged sword, God. So we give you all the glory this morning. And we just ask that you're cementing things in people's minds. uh, Things that uh, have been ruminating for a while, God. We just ask for clarity over this room. And we're just so thankful that you call us beloved. uh, That we're invited in. uh, That we have a a co-heir in everything that you're doing. And we're just so thankful that we get to play even a small part in your redemptive story. Uh, So thank you, God, for what you're doing. We pray that this is a stake in the ground for people, that they can look back and say that's when things were different, because of the living God, not because of any man-made religion or anything else that we seek to do, but because of you, Heavenly Father. We give you all the glory and all the spotlight. Amen.